wasn't bad. Welcome back to the Spirits Guy podcast. I am Rich, your guide through the intoxicating world of spirits, books, movies, music, and anything else I feel like connects us as humans. And I want to start out, as always, by thanking you guys for taking a minute out of your day, out of your week, out of your life to spend it with me. I really, really do appreciate it. Now, this episode here, I don't know... We're either going back in time or, or forward in time. The last episode in my mind as I sit here recording this uh, that I put out was my kind of rant on Fred Minnick's video, his Instagram post. And I recorded a whole episode following up to that. Uh, that was a sizable amount of samples. Maybe you've heard that already. Maybe you're going, what the fuck is he talking about? Because it doesn't come out until next week. I don't know yet. I don't know what the sequence of these episodes is going to be. But I do know that as of recording this right now, it is Super Bowl weekend. I know that something I'm going to... Oh, Jesus. Cork just flew right out of my hand. Um, I know that something that I'm going to want to talk about here on the podcast. I don't know if I want to make a whole episode about that. I, I don't know uh, how it's going to go. Um, so you're either hearing this before a sizable amount of samples where I talk about some kind of interesting things that I've seen recently, a, a, a couple of documentaries and some TV shows, or you're hearing this after that episode. Um, I don't know. We're, we're time hopping here. There's no rules. I'll figure it out after I finish recording this. And again, my, my sort of desire for this episode of the podcast, one, Talk about some amazing, amazing whiskeys that I have tried this week. I've tried a, just a, a bunch of whiskeys that, uh, again, are raising the bar. I know it's early in the year to say, like, contenders for whiskey of the year. But, man, I've tasted some things that are just blowing me away. So I want to talk about that, and I want to taste these whiskeys again. But, I, you know, I want to kind of record these first two segments and then watch the game, have a bunch of drinks, <laughs> game, uh, have some fun, and then record the final segment after you know the, the final gun goes off uh, for the Super Bowl uh, to talk about whether or not I won any money gambling on the Super Bowl, uh, what I thought about the commercials in the Swifty Bowl, um, what I thought about the game, uh, and you know probably have one more drink. So. By the end of this episode, which will be discontent, uh, sort of disjointed because the first two segments are going to be recorded uh, now and then the last one again after the game. I don't know what shape I'll be in by the end of this episode of the podcast. Let's get right into it. Uh, by the way, I've tasted a bunch of amazing whiskeys this week. And on this podcast, I am going to get an opportunity to taste a $250 bourbon and decide whether or not it's worth it. I'm going to tell you right out of the gate, I'm a little prejudiced, so I'm already thinking it's probably not going to be worth it, uh, but at least maybe I can save you uh, some money, which I feel I've done a good job of lately. Um, you know, I get to try that old Forester 1924. I had a couple of you guys ask me about it. I took one for the team on that one. Again, my post on Instagram kind of said it all. It's not like it was a terrible whiskey, 
But for 150 bucks, I wish I had a little bit more body, a little bit more flavor, and a little bit more proof. Uh, and I would love, love to line up uh, Old Forester 100 proof, Old Forester 1897 bottled in bond 100 proof, and the Old Forester 1924 at 100 proof, just to kind of see, even in the blind tasting, which one is better. So my whiskey week this week, you know, I mean, there's new releases to talk about. There's all kinds of stuff to talk about, but I feel like just what an amazing whiskey week I had. And I'll share the story. I've shared it with some of you already. Um, but, you know, one of the, the things we do, you know, we, we talk about it with the sizable amount of samples, which you, you heard last week or you're going to hear next week. Um, but, you know, sharing some of these bottles that we get with each other. Uh, so you can decide like, hey, I'm, I'm glad I didn't buy the whole bottle. That's not my jam. Or, wow, that's amazing. Uh, I'm going to you know try to find a bottle or just, you know, the opportunity to taste new things. And when my week started, I had just done up samples of all the ASW bottles that I had in stock. And you guys know I've been raving about ASW out of Atlanta, Georgia, um, a town down um, for quite some time. So I did up samples of the Fiddler, Georgia Hartwood, the Burns Night, the Duality, Resurgence Rye, and the Amberana Finish. Did them all up, labeled them, put them in my backpack. I'm getting ready to drive to work. I get a text message from one of my sales reps uh, who works for a wholesaler who is bringing in ASW into the state of Massachusetts. And the text message read, uh, my boss is out with the ASW rep today. Can he come by and see you at the store? And I thought like, wow, this is amazing timing because I literally just did up all the samples. So I get to the store and, you know, a couple of funny things. I meet Chad from ASW. And the first thing I do, you know, I was in the middle of telling another sales rep a story about the, the Fred Menick video and my sort of rant about it. And I can see kind of off in the corner in the background, this guy who's kind of smiling because he can hear me me telling the story of, you know, my sort of annoyance with, with that whole video. And like we kind of caught each other's eyes and he was like, yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. And it was Chad from ASW. Uh, so he came over, we started talking and I said, hey, before we even get going, I got to show you this. And I pulled out the five sample bottles that I had already poured off from my friend Craig just to kind of let him know like, Hey, I'm already on the bandwagon. I'm already here with you. Uh, and he kind of proceeded to pull out a whole lineup of ASW whiskeys and gins that are now going to be available here in Massachusetts. I was blown away by all of them. Um, and, and I learned a lot about ASW and I don't want to get, too deep into kind of all the ASW stuff because we are lining up a podcast, uh, probably via Zoom. Same thing I did with Dan Dehart from Grander Rum. Uh, same thing I did with Amanda down at Virginia. Same thing I did with Jeff Duckhorn. Uh, we're going to do a little Zoom chat, so I don't want to burn too much of that. Uh, but man, if you judge a brand by the people that work for it, uh, right out of the gate, Chad was awesome. We've been emailing back and forth trying to set this podcast thing up. And uh, I'm really excited to have them here in the state. Now, one of the bottles uh, that I brought into my store, 
It's already in my store now. Uh, was the Georgia Heartwood. Uh, so I didn't need to buy that one because I already have that one at home. Um, but we tasted through the Unison, which is kind of their base model bourbon, which I love at like 35 bucks in the shelf. Redwood Empire price point. Uh, I love it. That bourbon is going to be a winner for me. Uh, I tasted the Toasted Barrel bourbon, the Toasted Barrel rye. Um, what else did we taste? Oh, the Georgia Hartwood uh, Fiddler. In the Resurgence rye in a cask strength. And all the cask strengths are like under 120 proof. And I absolutely love that. I know there's a whole segment of the bourbon world that's just chasing that proof ladder up. To me, when I see cask strength at 118, I'm like, mmm, flavor bomb. It's going to be a flavor bomb. None of these whiskeys disappointed me. And so when they came in, I was like, all right, which one, which one am I going to buy? What's going to be the first one that I take home? And the first one I took home is the one that I just popped. This is the Fiddler Toasted Bourbon. And Fiddler, all the, the whiskeys in the Fiddler line for ASW uh, are sourced whiskeys. They're buying it from MGP. Uh, and so Fiddler kind of comes from fiddling around. And that's that's where the name comes from. A ton of uh, info on this label right there on the front label. Uh, it's a blend of two different bourbons. They're both around one is five years, one is six years. So they even give you the percentage. Uh, 40% is six years and two months. And 60% is five years, six months. All right, I'm done with that. Um, mash bill. This is so cool. A very unique MGP mash bill that I had to ask them, like, is anybody else using this mash? Mash bill, 51% corn. Now, we see this in rye a lot, what we call the barely legal rye, but this is a barely legal bourbon. 51 corn, a whopping 45% wheat, 4% malted barley. Gives it a totally unique flavor. Um, the finish, 40% uh, of it was finished for five months. 60% was finished for 22 months. Amazing. Uh, char, one and three. Uh, the toast, medium and heavy. And the alcohol by volume, the full proof, uh, it's 56.8%. So that's 113.6. This cask strength, weeded bourbon, 45% wheat at 113. Flavor bomb. You guys, if you could see the color of this whiskey, this isn't straw. This isn't hay. This is like, like the color of like iced coffee when some of the cubes have started to melt, and the the you know the deep dark brown of the iced coffee starts to thin just a little bit. It's still brown, but it's just a little thinner. That's it. For a five-year, six-year bourbon, the depth of color on this is unbelievable. All right, let's get into it. Man, it's just it's dark and rich, like 
baker's chocolate on the nose. What am I doing? I'm pouring this out of like a, a rocks glass. I'm going to get this into a Glen Cairn here. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, it just, if you like Toasted Barrel, I'll tell you what, I'll put this up against Elijah Craig Toasted. It'll beat it in color and flavor any day of the week. All right, here we go. Just darkness. Like mocha. Like wood, but in the best possible way for wood. It's rich. There's a nice like sweetness on the back end. I mean, this is just, this is dark. This is like, it's like a s'more, really, without the campfire aspect. It's like marzipan, chocolate. Oh, my goodness. And it does not drink its its proof point at all. Wow, that is delicious. Uh, yeah, another ASW bottle in my lineup. And I'm excited that I can get this every day. Um, is it good? Yes. Is it worth the money? 65 bucks for a craft whiskey of this quality at 45% wheat finished in a toasted barrel. This is, and again, finished. So it's been aged and then rebarreled into a toasted barrel for all that at 65 bucks, which I believe is about the same price as the Elijah Craig. This is far, far superior to Elijah Craig toasted barrel. This is just a beast. And maybe out of all the ones that I tasted, this is maybe my favorite. It might even be my favorite of all the ASW whiskeys that I've tried. And I know, I know, I know it's a little early in the year to be, you know, whiskey of the year candidate. But man, it's if this one doesn't hold on and make my top 10 at least. It's, you know, I, I started out talking about some disappointing whiskeys, uh, the Redwood Empire stuff, um, you know, the 1924, some of the whiskeys that let me down. But man, on the other end, this whole ASW lineup, uh, some of the things that I'm going to taste on the rest of this podcast, man, it turned around really quickly. And if this is how the year is going to start, we could be in for a great, great year of whiskey releases. Good and bad. It's the best and the worst of the time. Um, and before I get kind of into that train of thought, I do want to share uh, this this quick little story um, because I know I get on the podcast and I rant a lot and you know I kind of make jokes and I pick on things. But everything is not always terrible, and even in in areas where, you know, things have been polluted by money and, and corporations, every now and then, I just come across something that moves me, uh, and I just go like, "Wow, that's that's beautiful. That is sweet." Um, 
it's genuine it's real it's human like even amongst all the the giant madness there's still some things that just kind of stop me in my tracks and kind of touch me to my core and i wanted to share this story uh it has nothing to do with spirits or anything it's just a very very human thing that i saw um you know for two weeks now again this is super bowl weekend as i'm recording so basically if you turn on sports television for the last two weeks there has been nothing but super bowl discussion uh the nfl has built this thing up into a beast uh that can no longer be fed it's just it's just sheer madness how just big this really has become and you know I, I have the TV on at work and there's a few sportscasters that's, you know, I enjoy ESPN better than I like Fox just in, in general in their, the on-air talent. Maybe it's just because I grew up watching ESPN and I remember, God, I remember ESPN all the way back in the days when I was watching uh, world-class championship wrestling on ESPN and we were watching, you know, uh, Texas Hold'em tournaments on ESPN and you know all kinds of sort of marginal sports uh before they even launched espn2 and it looked like they were shooting it in somebody's garage uh before they built the massive campus that they have in in connecticut i've just i've been with espn for forever before it became the worldwide leader in sports so i'm watching this and they're live at the super bowl and there's a segment about this little girl this little 10 year old girl and she's getting kind of picked on in school because she is a book of knowledge when it comes to football. And, you know, like my first thought is like, wow, like the, the kind of sexism, like in those sort of stereotypes of like, you know, girls don't do football. They, they do girly things. And it, the, just sort of the ridiculous premise that it is of like the fact that there would be, you know, boys kind of pecking on her for having a knowledge of football. And yet for all of us boys who are watching football on ESPN, at least, I don't really know or care who's on some of the other stations, but, you know, all the, the NFL football shows on ESPN are all mostly anchored by women. Laura Rutledge is NFL Live. Mina Kimes, one of the most brilliant kind of sports minds that ESPN has there. Uh, Samantha Ponder who hosts the Sunday NFL countdown show all like they're not just there as eye candy. Like they're brilliant football minds who talk to talk and you never really think like, Oh wow, that's a woman talking football. I just think like, wow, they're really, really good, you know, at what they do They're you know, there's just sort of no distinction between the women and the men on there. So if you're a little boy and you're watching football on ESPN, it shouldn't be that out of the norm that there's a woman talking football. It's pretty awesome to me that there's a 10 year old girl watching football and who knows it. And so the father sent some post, and I'm not sure which platform it was on one of the social medias uh, to Laura Rutledge, again, who hosts the daily uh, NFL show on ESPN, basically saying like, you know, my daughter was getting picked up, uh, picked on at school for her knowledge of football and, how she knew all this stuff. And I told her to, you know, like just look up to Laura Rutledge and Mina Kimes and Samantha Ponder. 
and like he kind of put it out there to to I think it was on Laura Rutledge's page of like, you know, just so you know, like I'm using you as an inspiration for my daughter. Which then kind of led to Laura Rutledge doing basically a, a cameo video uh, for the little girl. Now, I don't know how they got out to Vegas because the next sort of shot in the segment is basically them standing on a stage uh, on one of the sets uh, of one of the NFL shows on ESPN. And there's Laura Rutledge and Mina Kimes and this little 10-year-old girl and her little 8-year-old sister and her mom and dad there. And they're talking to them. And, you know, they're interviewing this girl and they're talking to her about football. And I'm like, Jesus, like she knows more about this game uh, than I do almost. Like she's just talking the talk as if she's, you know, anybody else who's been a football fan all their lives and, and she's 10. And so they ask her, like, you know, how did you get into football? And she's like, I didn't like it at first uh, because I didn't understand it. But my dad watched it. And so she started asking her dad questions about you know, why was this a foul? What's going on here? How does this work? You know, what what's happening? And, you know, through him explaining it to her, she became a fan because she understood it more um, to the point where her knowledge of play calls and, you know, how to stop Patrick Mahomes was probably on par with what her dad was, you know, kind of able to articulate. And it just like it was a touching thing that almost brought a tear to my eye, put a little knot in my stomach. And it just sort of made me realize of like how shitty we kind of view things sometimes in life when we don't understand them Um, and how awful it is when we exclude people from having that knowledge. um, Because if if more people could understand more things, not only could they be more empathetic, but they could have more enjoyment out of it. And it just sort of blew me away of like, that was how she connected with her dad. And then Mina Kimes kind of said like, that's how she connected with her dad was, you know, through watching sports together and them having something in common, a bond that they could talk about and she could ask questions and learn about. And it was just, it was one of the sweetest things I had seen in a long time in a world full of madness and in a Super Bowl full of money and corporate and everything just being massive and huge. Um, there was this little girl who brought humanity to it. Um, and, and again, sort of a, a lesson to me of being inclusive and, and you know, that once you can understand something, you can appreciate it more and, and enjoy it. Um, and that's what I try to do here all the time. Be inclusive, explain things. Um, it's what I'm always trying to do when I'm reading things or I'm watching things. Like I want to learn more about things that I don't know about, things that aren't maybe natural to me. Um, but the more you learn about them, the more you realize like, wow, that's pretty fucking cool. And hey, maybe we're not that different, you know, and maybe in their household, that's the thing that father and daughter connect over. And, you know, who knows, maybe in 20 years when the daughter is is married or a professional or doing whatever she's doing, maybe her and her dad still get together and watch football. And so for everybody who thinks like football is, is stupid, it's just barbaric men beating each other up. 
maybe it's something that humans can connect over, you know, and, and have a discussion about, which can lead to other discussions. And maybe her and her dad don't ever have anything else in common except for football. And that's what keeps them together once a week. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was, it was moving to me. Um, it, it was just, it was sort of a nice thing uh, in a world that doesn't always have a lot of nice things. Uh, and speaking of not being inclusive, but being for the select few, my friend Scott, who is a sales rep for one of my wholesalers, uh, was kind enough to bring me a sample of this one. I will close this segment out with. This is a sample of, I, I can't believe I'm even holding this in my hand, Blue Run 8-Year Show and Go Barrel. Uh, 124.4 proof. This would be suggested retail based off the case price that he gave me, 225 on the shelf. Uh, and with the ridiculousness of secondary, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if stores were charging 250. Wouldn't be surprised if they were charging 300. I'm just surprised that people are paying it. So Blue Run is a Jim Rutledge project. Um, this is from a selection of 10 single barrels that they had um, that were aged for six years. And then they brought back to their Rick house and aged an additional two years. So it's an eight year old single barrel. Uh, all 10 single barrels have their own name. If you go to their website, uh, that info is there. Uh, Mashbill 75 corn, 21 rye, four malted barley. And the big thing I'm looking for is, is it worth $225? And from talking to a lot of you guys, like, I'm starting to get the sense from you that maybe you guys are starting to agree with me. That maybe this is the year. The paradigm shift doesn't happen in a year. It happens over time. But this is the year that it starts. Without a doubt in my brain. How many of these $200 bottles do we need? And is anything, after just tasting that Fiddler Toasted, you take away the mash bill, the age statement, and you just focus on the liquid. Is that bourbon better than what I'm about to taste? Let's find out. Blue Run, eight-year single barrel, show and go. It's good. Well made. You can taste that little bit of age on it. Really sweet finish, which is surprising for, for that level of proof. It's good. It's really good. Would I pay $225 for it? Not a chance in hell. Now, if that's your flavor profile, I get it. It's good stuff. Um, but this is this is for the haves. And, you know, I just posted a, a book that I finished reading by Tom Standage, uh, you know, The History of the World in Six Glasses. 
And the one thing that remained constant, and basically what it does is it kind of through broad stroke, and I'll get into this book at another time a little bit deeper because it's an awesome book and I'm so glad I read it. But it's kind of a broad stroke of how the, the world went from beer to wine to spirits to coffee to tea to Coca-Cola. And it tracks sort of the economical progress of the world, the political progress of the world, the industrial progress of the world. But the one thing that remains true is when beer was a thing, the best beer went to the people with the most money. Garbage beer was served to the poor. Wine, when it was readily available to everybody, it was broken down in the classifications and the best wine was only for the wealthy. The garbage was for the poor. Same thing in coffee houses. Initially, they were meant for people of status. When there was a limited amount, it only went to the people with status. Uh, same thing with spirits. The better quality spirits were only for the people with money. This is where we're at in bourbon right now, and this is the snake that will eat its own tail. Bourbons like this are only for people with money, and I believe that people with money think that they're great because they spent a lot of money on them. Nobody's going to ever admit that it, they spent $250 on a bottle of bourbon and went, eh, it's just not that good. It's sort of just okay. So this is good. Is it good? Yeah. Is it worth the money? No. Does a bottle start a conversation? It absolutely does. It's got a pretty butterfly. All right. I'm going to take a quick break. Come back and uh, we'll talk about the Dickensian state of bourbon these days. Oh, that sounded weak. Let's try that one more time. A little bit better. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Charles Dickens. A Tale of Two Cities. Now, the first time I ever heard the term Dickensian, I was like, what the hell is that? And it was actually used in The Wire, the greatest television show of all time. And why do I bring up that quote? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. In the bourbon world, it's a very Dickensian time. It's the best of times because we're getting great, great bottles of bourbon. Fiddler Toasted Barrel. Uh, just this week, I found out that Sealbox is finally shipping to Massachusetts. That great cork pop that you just heard. I say great. It was kind of mediocre. Uh, 13th Colony Distilleries. And I'm not sure why they're listed as distilleries, but another conversation for another day. Um, this is their Southern Bourbon whiskey. These guys are out of Georgia, actually out of Americus, Georgia. Mashville, you know, for all the snobs who think that, you know, Mashville tells a whole story. Uh, 70 corn, 21 rye, nine malted barley. It's a blend of four to six year bourbons. Uh, the label actually says produced 
and bottled by 13th Colony Distilleries. Again, I don't know why the plural uh, nature of that. And from everything that I can research, they are sourcing some of the whiskey and making some of the whiskey. It's in a state where the demand for their whiskey exceeds what they can physically produce. So rather than say they're sourcing the whiskey, it's being contract distilled at another distillery. Uh, It's a big mystery and a secret. But none of that matters if the whiskey is good. Now, I don't know what Southern bourbon means. Kind of bourbon is a Southern thing. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. It's the best of times because places like Sealbox will now ship to my state. It's the best of times because brands that I've read about, these exotic things, 13th Colony, Frey Ranch, the next whiskey I'm going to be tasting, uh, they're available. Uh, Smoke Wagon, uh, Law's Whiskey House, um, Ben Halliday, like some of these whiskeys from far off places, they're here. I can get them in Massachusetts, in my hometown, in my home state. That's the best of times. Um, there are great whiskeys on the shelf, you know, Four Roses, Old Forester, uh, Maker's Mark. Like these whiskeys are fantastic. They're readily available. They're affordable. It is the best of times. There's so much Blue Run, Kentucky Owl, Michter's 25 status bottles that are only for the elite and the wealthy. It is the worst of times that every whiskey that comes out that is made in a limited quantity is all of a sudden just allocated. I was just talking to my friend Scott who shared that sample with me. Um, and he's talking about another brand. I, I forget the name of it. Um, I don't want to shit on it until I get the actual name, you know, but he's like, yeah, it's a new brand and they're really pricey. And, you know, then they've got a bunch of one-off stuff. Well, it, that's the state of, of, of bourbon right now. And this is why Fred Minnick, there is going to be a collapse. There's going to be a glut. There's no denying that you can't have Buffalo trace doubling capacity. You can't have blue run building a new distillery. Uh, you can't have some of these other companies that are going online, full fledged distilleries. When I talked to Chad from ASW, he told me straight out, we get calls from distilleries all the time that are contract distilleries. And we tell them we're good. We have all the whiskey we need. We have a contract with MGP and we're making our own whiskey. We're good. What that shows me is all these new big distilleries that are going online, instead of people going to them going like, Hey, I need more capacity. Uh, what can we get from you? What can you distill for us? They're reaching out to these smaller distilleries and seeing if they can sell them bourbon. That's not a good sign. That means the glut is already in motion. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. 
The Age of Wisdom is finding a brand like Redwood Empire at 35 bucks that you can afford that tastes really good. Finding a brand like ASW, Fiddler, Toasted Bourbon at 65 bucks. That's a little bit more special of a bottle at 65, but it's really good. It's the age of foolishness. When people are paying thousands of dollars retail for bottles of Pappy, when people are paying 200 bucks for a bottle of Blanton's at retail, that's the age of foolishness. When when people are calling me up asking me, hey, did you get any of that old forest in 1924? As if I'm going to say, you know what? I did. And I have been waiting all fucking day for you to call. Where have you been? I'm just holding it here for you. It's the age of foolishness. When we're paying all this money for a product that most of these people don't even intend to drink. They just want to post it on Instagram to show that they've got a great score this weekend. Stop it. It doesn't make you a better human being. You don't even know if the whiskey inside is any good because you're never going to open it. It is the age of foolishness. All right. 13th Colony Bourbon. Whoa. I gave you the the mash. 95 proof. Love it. Um, The bottles are numbered. Uh... If you've never seen the bottle or you missed my post, if you've ever seen a bottle of birthday bourbon, they use the same exact bottle. It's kind of cool to look at uh, when I was down in Georgia. It's the whole reason I didn't bring one back on the airplane because you'll never fit that in one of those wine travel bags. And it's not really the greatest for pouring, uh, but it looks super cool. I bought this on Sealbox, had it shipped uh, right to my door. I think I paid 50 bucks on Sealbox again. For craft bourbon, four to six years, I'm okay with that. Here we go. Mm. No bells, no whistles, no... Holy shit, that's the most amazing bourbon. It's really good. Again, darker flavors, mocha, coconut creme brulee like burnt sugar marzipan like all of those flavors a little nuttiness in there a little bit of sweetness on the finish yeah i have there's nothing wrong with this bourbon it is absolutely delicious it is perfectly drinkable not only would i not be embarrassed to serve it i would be proud to serve it this is fantastic and again now that Sealbox is here in mass, I can get it. And this is the other thing about the best of times, the worst of times. It's the best of times because this stuff is available. It's also the worst of times because there's so much corporate money. And again, Fred Minnick, if you pay attention to the world around you, to the landscape of the entire industry, not just your one little sliver that's been relevant for the past 20 years, uh, but the rest of it that's been in existence for hundreds of years, you'll see that this happens. We just watched this happen with beer in the last 10 years. Craft brewing got huge. And a couple of things happened. One, these breweries like Green Flash, um, Sweetwater, they tried to go national. They got big regionally. They tried to go national and realized that 
they don't have the the structure to sustain a national distribution unit. The Budweisers, the Coors, the Millers, the people who have been doing it for a hundred years, they have the financial structure. They have the network. They have breweries remotely all over the country and all over the world to save them money so they can make fresh beer and have it in New England. They don't have to make it in St. Louis and ship it here. They can make it closer to home, but they've been around for a long time. Distilleries like Buffalo Trace, Jim Beam, uh, Heaven Hill, Old Forest or Wild Turkey, they've been around for a while. They have the structure and the financial stability to be a global brand, to at least be a national brand. When you're a smaller brand, you don't have the structure, the financial stability, or the demand. It's a curiosity buy. So when you try to go national, I've seen it fall on its face multiple times. Woodenville, great product. Read a ton of hype on it. Was always wanting to find a bottle of Woodenville. And then Moet Hennessy bought them. Now you get that big corporate money. Now you've got a corporation that has made a financial investment. And they have shareholders that they are responsible to. They have to show those shareholders, hey, this is how we spent our money. This is the return you're going to get. And they flood the market with it because they need a return on their investment. And you know what happened? Woodenville hit Massachusetts and nobody gave a shit. It came in at the same price that this 13th colony is. 45 bucks, 50 bucks. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Once it started to become available everywhere, wasn't exotic anymore. Nobody cares. They tried it once. They moved on. Uh, Wilderness Trail. Talk about a critic's fucking darling. I had read all kinds of stuff about Wilderness Trail. When I went and took my executive bourbon steward course in Kentucky at Moonshine University, which again, if you haven't done so, seriously, invest the money. It is well worth every single penny. There were people from Wilderness Trail in my class. I wanted to love the brand. I really did. And then I tasted it and realized, eh, it's not for me. It's a different style. It's a different flavor profile. They do good stuff. They do unique stuff. I didn't even bother to bring it into my store. I knew it would dog out. It's been in the market for a couple of years now. They're owned by Campari, who also owns Wild Turkey. Nobody cares. I talked to the sales reps who sell this stuff. If you're out there thinking like, well, this is just Rich's perspective on his store and this is just his opinion. And what is his opinion worth? I do some research. I talk to the sales reps who sell this product. The people who would be selling it to me are the same people who are selling it to every other store in my area, to every store in the state. I ask them, how is Wilderness Trail doing out there? They just shake their head and look down. It's not doing anything. I talk to the people about New Riff. Talk about a brand that makes amazing whiskey that we've seen all kinds of press on. It's been in Massachusetts for a couple of years. It's not doing anything. But what does that do? Why does that matter? Because it's money. 
They expanded. They probably took a loan out to expand. And now they owe money. They've got to get a return on that investment. When a Campari buys you for millions and millions and millions of dollars, they don't expect your brand to just sit on the shelf. But it is. But it shows the risk and it makes the next gamble, the next risk, the next investment, it makes it cost a little bit more. When you take out a loan from the bank and you make a whole bunch of late payments and then you try to take out another loan, your interest rates are going to be higher if you get another loan at all. That's just common sense, simple math economics. That's just the way it works. So it's, it's, those are the things that are going to hurt the bourbon world and just the absolute dilution. Is there going to be a glut? Of course, there's going to be a glut. By the way, what happened with the beer industry? Either the independent breweries tried to go national and a lot of them went bankrupt or had to recede back to a local brand. The other thing that happened was corporations, kind of like the Camparis and the Moet Hennessy's, the Budweiser's, Anheuser-Busch, um, went around and bought up every craft brewery they could and realized they weren't making any money off of it. And they're dumping them. Constellation Brands, maybe one of the worst monsters in the game, went in and bought Ballast Point Brewery out of San Diego for a half a billion dollars. As the story goes, they went in because Ballast Point was huge at the time. And they went in and they said, we want to buy you. He said, I'm not for sale. And they said, well, just give us a number. And he went, fucking half a billion dollars. And they came back the next day with a check. They bought it. Because people with money aren't always smart. Bankers and speculators aren't always smart. They bought the brand for like a half a billion or a billion dollars. I forget which one it is. It immediately fell off a cliff and died. To this day, and that was four years ago, to this day, the distributor that picked up Ballast Point after Constellation Bottom they have picked up more out of code ballast point out of the marketplace than they have sold back into the marketplace. That's how quickly it dropped. This is what happens. Now, had those beers stayed regional, they would have made enough money to survive, pay their bills, keep a business afloat. It's not good for everybody to have a place at the big table. I love the fact that ASW is here. I fear that them entering the Massachusetts market may do more damage to the brand than anything. I love the fact that something like Sealbox exists, that 13th Colony doesn't come to Massachusetts, that Chattanooga doesn't come to Massachusetts, that Frey Ranch doesn't come to Massachusetts, that people like myself, my friend Peter, my friend Glenn, Corey, Kevin, Jason, all these people that I know if we want a bottle of 13th Colony, I can order it from Sealbox. I don't have to worry about them coming up and making sure there's enough supply to fill the whole state. I like the fact that this is a thing. It's the best of times because brands like this will hopefully utilize the sort of portal that is Sealbox. And there's Sealbox isn't the only one. There's a, a couple other sites. And quite honestly, I haven't checked if they're shipping yet or not. Um, but it makes those whiskeys accessible without having to scale all the way up to a point where they flood the market. 
well, why don't they just come to Massachusetts and only be in one or two stores? Because a wholesaler isn't going to take on the brand unless they can sell it everywhere. They're not bringing in four cases of 13th Colony just to satisfy a couple of stores. They either want it by the pallet or they don't want it at all. It's the best of times because these whiskeys are out there. It's the worst of times because some of them are either being bought by corporate monsters and being flooded into the market, which is killing them, or they're just trying to go national on their own, and that is not a good good thing. Mm. All right. This bottle is diesel. Uh, weak cork pop, but whatever. The whiskey's good. This is Frey Ranch. These guys are out of... I'm going to say Nevada. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. In Nevada. It's the Sierra Nevada. So it's a four grain mash bill. They have a farm where they grow it. Um, and they started out as farmers. So they had money to do things the right way. Kind of like Starlight. Talk about another brand. Starlight. Critics Darling. I read all about them. They hit the market. That stuff is dead on the shelf. Um, 66.6% yellow dent corn, 10% winter wheat, 11.4% winter rye, and 12% two-row malted barley. That is your mash. 90 proof on the Richter scale. I love it right there in the side of the bottle. Grown, distilled, matured, and bottled at Frey Ranch Fallon, Nevada. This bottle is diesel. It's so heavy. Um, like decanter heavy, uh, great lines in the bottle, great label, very, very attractive. Uh, my friend Fitz had actually given me a sample a while back. I think I did it here in the podcast of some hazmat level Frey ranch stuff. Uh, I can only imagine with the heat out there in Nevada, uh, what kind of angel share they get, uh, with that. <sighs> Totally different nose than everything else, too. It's a little bit more like corn, corn cob. I don't know the age, uh, but I'm assuming it's at least four years because there's nothing that says it's less than that. Yeah, very light, but very sort of corn forward on the nose all right here we go mm. and again it's the best of times it's the worst of times it's the best of times because i just tasted Frey ranch 13th colony fiddler and blue run four bourbons that couldn't taste any more different from each other I will say out of the four that Fiddler toasted is unreal. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of, I'm not going to lie, guys. I stumble on this word. Incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. Again, it's... The light is that 
there's great bourbon out there. The darkness is it's being hoarded by a very select few. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. It, it, it's the spring of hope because there's a lot of new bourbon drinkers who are getting excited and it's great for the category. But it's a winter of despair for those of us who have been into the category before it was cool and hip and have seen how overinflated it has gotten, have seen the foolishness that have just kind of taken over uh, this world. And the foolishness of the whole Fred Minnick, if there is a glut, again, there's going to be a glut. There's too much whiskey out there from too many states of just bourbon. Just bourbon. We're not talking about blended whiskeys. We're not talking about rye. We're not talking about American single malt because nobody's talking about American single malt, um, let alone Irish whiskey and Scotch whiskey. There's so much out there. There's more supply to be had than there is demand. And there's going to be more supply then there is demand. And I use this analogy when I met with the ASW rep, when we were talking about this video of like, will there be a glut? Do you think there'll be a glut? Yeah, it happens in everything. It's called opportunism. When grunge music hit, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Stone Temple Pilots, even though they're not necessarily Pacific Northwest, those bands hit. What happened? Every mediocre grunge band in the world got signed and the radios got flooded with grunge music that wasn't good. Happened in the 80s, hair metal. So a couple of those bands were really good. Motley Crue, Rat, Poison. And next thing you know, we're just getting inundated with garbage bands that all sounded the same. Happens in pop music, you know, Backstreet Boys hits, um, sync hits. And next thing you know, there's a whole bunch of crappy boy bands and girl bands because people see money and opportunity. The first ones through, the second ones through are usually the ones that can sustain and have the real talent when you're talking about music. Um, you know, make the really good stuff. Like when you're talking about bourbon and it's Jim Beam and Heaven Hill and Wild Turkey and Old Forester. But all these speculators and these bankers who are going like, there's money to be made in bourbon. Uh, I go back to that conversation I had with that numbnut up at Smoky Quartz in New Hampshire. who was like, well, I read an article that, you know, bourbon was going to be the next, you know, financial craze. And so I got into bourbon and that stuff is awful and it's disingenuous and you can taste it in his product. Um, and then what happens is you owe people money and that changes the way your margins are set. You know, again, I don't know how many times we've said this. Why is Jim Beam White Label so inexpensive? Why is Evan Williams Bottled in Bond so inexpensive? Why? Because they've been doing it for 80 years. Their bills are paid. They don't owe people money. They didn't just build a new distillery. Why are some of these craft distilleries so expensive? Because they owe money. They have a note. Why is Woodenville probably $10 more on the shelf than it should be? Moet Hennessy's got to make their money back. Same thing with Wilderness Trail. They probably bailed Wilderness Trail out of whatever banknotes they owed, but now they've got to get their money back. And that adds to the final cost on the shelf. And it stops becoming about quality 
it starts becoming about quantity. And then some of these higher end bottles, they're just there to kind of satisfy uh, the people with money. So it's the best of times. It's the worst of times. It's the spring of hope. It's the winter of despair. And heaven forbid, what happens if bourbon, after its 20-year run in the thousand-year history of spirits, what happens if it fails? My God, we'll have to go back to selling vodka and light beer. Or maybe another spirit will take its place. For a while in this country, we sold sherry. We sold port. And then we sold brandy. And then we sold vodka. And then we sold gin. And now it's bourbon. Before bourbon, it was scotch. Who knows? Maybe if bourbon recedes, the next hot thing might be Irish whiskey. Could be tequila. Maybe it'll go back to brandy, which is the original spirit that we made in this country. Maybe it'll turn over to rum, which again was an original spirit that we made in this country. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. All right, I'm going to finish this glass of Frey Ranch. Again, man, that Fiddler toasted. Can't go without mentioning that one more time. I'm going to go have another glass or two of that Fiddler toasted. Uh, Take a break. And when I come back to talk to you again, it's going to be after the Super Bowl. We'll be talking about the game, the commercials, how much money I lost betting. Yeah. All right, guys. Take a break. Enjoy the game. And I'll, uh, we'll meet back here when the game is over. All right, I am back. And, you know, at the the end of the last segment, I told you guys I was going to watch the game and then come back and record while it was fresh after the game and and talk about things sort of right there off the cuff. And I did that. Um, You know, I stayed up. I, I watched the game. Then it went into overtime, and there was a whole fifth quarter that went right down to the last few seconds which gave me another quarter of drinking time. And the game was over, and what an absolutely just amazing game. Um, You know, I'm a Steelers fan. I'm a Patriots fan. So I really didn't have a dog in the fight other than some a little bit of gambling that I did in the game. Uh, Very small amounts of money, nothing major. Really, just as a, a football fan, I was hoping for just a close game that will keep you sort of interested right down till the very end. And literally, how could you not watch that game right down till the very end? The consequence of that, again, an extra quarter of drinking. The game ended. I came in here in the studio. I closed the door behind me. It had to be 11 o'clock or or whatever. Uh, You know, so a good five hours of of drinking had occurred. And I, I sat here in my chair put my headphones on, hit the record button, and rambled for about 27 minutes. And then I got up today, the day after the Super Bowl, 
and I listened back to that recording. And I know I'm always trying to be genuine and authentic and real and unscripted, unfiltered, unedited, unprepared. I was prepared. Um, what a hot, hot mess. I was like, what am I selling? I'm all over the place. There's, there's no rhyme or reason to what I was saying. And you know what? Maybe in the future, I'll release that segment as sort of a bonus episode so you guys can get kind of a good laugh at just how drunk I was. And, you know, true to the nature of, of drunk people, um, and this is a, a, a thing I learned you know, because I was a bartender for almost 30 years, it's, which is hard to believe that I'm, I'm that old, but here I am. But the one of the biggest things I learned about drunk people is the last people to know that they're drunk almost always are drunk people. <laughs> we never want to admit that. No, 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 I'm fine. I can go record. This will be great. It's going to be awesome. There is a recording of it. It does exist. Uh but I knew like I have to have to sort of redo uh, my Super Bowl review. So we'll break it down into a couple of things. First of all, the game was awesome. And no, I didn't win any money. Um, you know, now that gambling is is so big, um, it really does change a little bit of your your sort of interest in the game depending on, you know, what you you like to bet. Um I don't bet big, you know, I think I, I downloaded the Caesar Sportsbook app. There's a couple of, you know, sort of apps you can download on your phone and, and gamble online. Um, they seem pretty good. They seem pretty secure. Uh, I had a lot of fun with it during football season. I, I don't really gamble on other sports. Uh, to me, gambling on basketball, you're betting on free throws and, you know, the last 10 seconds of a basketball game can change point totals by 20, 30 points sometimes. Um, hockey's a hard one to bet. Baseball, like just sort of the the randomness, for me at least, um, football is really the only thing um, that I will touch. Actually, I'll bet on tennis too. Um, but again, like I, I, I'll put maybe $50 in my account in, you know, bet $5 a game or $10 a game. You know, if I get up to like $100 in winnings, I might bet a little bit bigger when I've got more money to play with. Um, but nothing crazy. I'm not throwing $1,000 down on on anything. Um, and, and what I did, what Caesars Sportsbook uh, kind of had as a feature for the Super Bowl was, you know, the it had Super Bowl squares. And you go like, oh, how does that happen? You could literally go down and pick, you know, if you, I'm, I'm sure most of you know what Super Bowl squares are. I don't have to explain that. But you could literally go down and bet like, uh, I, I think I had $5 on San Francisco, five, Kansas City, eight. You could literally pick the number combinations you wanted to, as opposed to randomly buying a square and then waiting for the numbers to be drawn. You could literally bet on those number combinations. And so I did that a bunch of different ways. I lost all of them. Uh, I bet Kansas City, uh, no, bet San Francisco to win and to cover the over, which was 47 and a half. Didn't come close on that. I knew on the first drive when McCaffrey fumbled the ball uh, that this was not going to be uh, my day for the over. Um, 
so yeah, that that's kind of all I did. I missed every number combination. Um, and I, I missed my bet on the game. But betting aside, the game was so, so good um, that it, it just kind of kept me in tune. And, you know, when you're in it, you don't realize, like, oh, I'm, I'm still drinking. I'm still drinking. Yeah, I was I was pretty drunk. Um, it, was a, it was a harsh morning for me, as I'm sure it was for a lot of people who stayed up and watched that game right until uh, the bitter end. And my, my thoughts on the game, I, I really thought it was – Maybe the best Super Bowl uh, I've seen. Definitely one of the top three or four. And for me, what I don't understand, and I apologize, like if you're not a football person, like if this holds no interest in you, uh, I apologize. Uh, but I got a football kind of geek out a little bit here. There was sort of this narrative going into the game that Brock Purdy somehow needed to prove himself as the San Francisco 49ers quarterback, uh, being the last player picked in the draft a couple years ago. Um, you know, being only his second year in the league. And and for whatever reason, like, it's almost like the media propped him up that he was almost considered to be one of the, the greats and then knocked him back down by saying he had to prove something, um, which apparently is just something we, we do to people and things in this country is we, we literally build him up just so we have something to tear down. I didn't get that narrative. And again, if you're not a football fan, this kind of goes past you. I apologize. Um, I thought Brock Purdy played a great, great game. I don't know that one game anoints you as a great quarterback. Um, when you go back over the years, Brad Johnson won a Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Nobody ever said he was a great quarterback. Uh, Trent Dilfer won a Super Bowl with the Baltimore Ravens a few years ago. Nobody ever ever refers to Trent Dilfer as a potentially great quarterback. Um, in fact, it was one of the worst offensive teams ever to win the Super Bowl that year. I remember you bet the under uh, point total in every game that season. Uh, Nick Foles beat the Patriots and Tom Brady. Nobody, nobody has ever said that Nick Foles is a great quarterback. Jeff Hostetler was not a great quarterback um and these guys won a super bowl and that didn't give him credibility as a great quarterback on the other hand dan marino never won a super bowl he went to one he lost um widely considered to be a great quarterback warren moon was considered to be a great quarterback randall cunningham considered to be a great quarterback jim kelly considered to be a great quarterback never won a super bowl um so, again, I don't know that one game makes or breaks. I didn't understand other than, you know, sports media needing to create something uh, to talk about. And it just happened to be, you know, the guy who's not going to say boo. He's just a – he seems like – I mean, I don't know him personally, obviously. But he just seems like a, a God-fearing country boy who loves to play football and is going to – work his ass off and, and try to outthink people. And maybe he didn't have the, the raw talent that Patrick Mahomes has, um, but it's going to make him always work harder and think harder. And what makes Patrick Mahomes dangerous is he has all this raw talent 
and that same mindset of needing to outwork and outthink and be better, even though he already is sort of the best in the game right now. That's what makes him dangerous to me. Um, Usually you don't get raw talent and work ethic in the same sort of body. Nobody ever said Tom Brady was the most talented quarterback. They always knocked his arm strength. He wasn't very mobile. He's not very athletic. And yet he's widely considered to be the greatest of all time because he had a good work ethic and, you know, a good brain. You just don't usually get the two. And I think that's what makes uh, Patrick Mahomes uh, just better than everybody else is he's got the talent and the will to win and the, the drive to be even better. I don't know if he'll ever get to Brady's level because I don't know in sort of the landscape of today, whereas Tom Brady was never the highest paid, let alone highest paid player. He was never the highest paid quarterback in the NFL. Um, And what that allowed was the team to have money to put players around him. That might not have been the best players, but they could certainly fill some holes and, and invest a little bit. Uh, You know, if Mahomes has taken, 60 million a year and and what that counts against the salary cap. I don't know that there's enough money sort of left to, to sign guys um, to bring in veteran players like that, you know, to, to bring in other superstars. Uh, So we'll, we'll have to see uh, what the future holds there. All right. 11 minutes into this segment. We haven't drank yet. Let's get to it. Um, It's terrible. You know, this is what I cracked. Uh, when I, I tried to record after the game, now I get to taste it again. This, you know, I tasted a lot of great whiskey. Uh, I posted this up on my Instagram in the last week or two, you know, all the ASW stuff I got to taste. Um, and you know, the, the sizable amount of samples episode that came out last week, some really, really cool stuff there. Uh, the things from Sealbach. Uh, my Frey Ranch, 13th Colony, so many great whiskeys I've got to taste. But this one, man, this one is the best of what I've gotten to taste recently. And maybe one of the best things I have tasted in the last six months, nine months. Um, and again, it's early. It's it's February. Uh, I, you know, you don't want to get too far ahead of things and be like, this is a contender for whiskey of the year. But Man, it is a contender for whiskey of the year. This is Glenfiddich 12-year. And you're going like, oh, 12-year? Uh, I've seen that before. No, this is a limited edition bottling. Uh, Glenfiddich 12-year. Matured for 12 years in American and European oak sherry casks before finishing in a Montiato sherry casks for a distinct, rich, and refined depth of flavor. Uh, that's right there on the front label. Clocking in at 86 proof on the Richter scale, 43% ABV. I know, bourbon snobs, that's really low. It's going to be light. Shut up, you're a moron. Oh, man, the nose on this, you know, this is, I, I've made so many great connections over the past few years uh, working at the store through spirits. And, you know, a lot of you guys, we're all bourbon heavy, but I've got a few customers that are scotch heavy. Uh, and I've talked about it before when I get together with my best friend, you know, we drink exclusively scotch and I love bourbon despite what Fred Minnick, you know, wants to say, I don't want to see it fail. Um, but bourbon is like 
It punches you in the face. It lets you know I'm here. Scotch, Scotch is finesse. It's elegant. It's refined. It's nuanced. Single malt Scotch, specifically, 100% malted barley. That's in the guidelines. We know the mash bill. And, and yet, all these single malt scotches that all have the same recipe are all distinctly different. Hmm. Maybe knowing the mash bill doesn't tell you the whole story. But the freedom to still be able to call it scotch while aging it in a variety of casks and finishes. Um, I know bourbon tries to get away with it. It's like bourbon finished in. Technically, it's not bourbon. This is 100% legally scotch. Now, you know, typically when we see sherry finish, it's a sweeter style like an Oloroso, a Pedro Jimenez. Um, Montiato is a lot drier of a sherry, so you're almost getting both ends of the sherry spectrum. Sweetness in the aging, uh, a little less sweet on the finish. And on the nose, like it's like, like baking spices and red fruit, but also stone fruit, cereal chamomile all right here we go mm. Mm. so as i was saying oh man that is so good just unbelievable again fruits you know raspberries but also pears and apricots mm chamomile tea, honey. Oh, so, so good. So yeah, you know, you guys come and see me at the store. Uh, some of you do. And and one particular customer that I've become very friendly with over the past few years, uh, his name is Bob. And Bob and I, when we, we sit and chat, we end up tasting scotch almost exclusively. Um, and he was in the other day looking for a, a new bottle to try. And I told him that this had just come in. It was limited edition. Uh, he bought a bottle. We went back to sort of my tasting area of the store. We cracked it. I tasted it. And I went, oh, shit. That is delicious. Um, thank Bob. And, and Bob, if you're listening, thank you again. And as always, for, for sharing these things with me. Uh, I immediately bought a bottle. Uh, you know, sometimes when customers do this, you know, I get to taste the old Forest in 1924. We had gotten a few bottles into the store. I was looking at it like, you know, I'd, I'd like to taste it, but also I don't need another $150 bottle. And my friend TJ that I sold it to was nice enough to let me try it. And it was really good. Again, I thought it could have been a lot more proof and body and flavor, but it was really good. But I also had the thought of like, that's awesome. I got to try it. I don't feel bad that I didn't have to buy it. You know, like I got to taste it. That's all I really wanted to do. And this one, as soon as I tasted it, I went and, and ran a bottle through the register immediately. 80 bucks on the shelf worth every single penny for 12 year single malt scotch aged in bourbon and sherry and then finished in another sherry worth every single penny this is delicious um last thoughts on the game you know it really was a, a tight game 
you know, obviously separated by three points. Um, and sort of that Brock Purdy narrative, like Brock Purdy played awesome. Um, and that game to me came down to three plays. One, McCaffrey fumbling the ball on the opening drive. It was kind of a momentum hit. Um, they should have been up by another touchdown or at least another field goal at that point. Uh, the missed extra point. The missed extra point changes so much because that would have given San Francisco a four-point lead at the very end of the game in regulation time. And when Kansas City was driving down and there were only seconds left in the game, they kicked a field goal to tie it. But had San Francisco not missed that extra point, it would have been a four-point lead. There still would have only been three seconds left, and KC would have had to take a shot at a touchdown. Now, maybe they would have won it there, but if they didn't get that touchdown, then San Francisco would have won right there before you got to regulation. The other play that really, really changed the game uh, was the punt, where it hit the back of a San Francisco player's leg. Um, the the guy who was supposed to be back there to receive it uh, was way back, tried to wave his guy off, and it hit another player, making it a live ball, fumble. KC recovers, throws a touchdown pass for the first touchdown of the game for Patrick Mahomes at that point. And it was such a, a quick, you know, KC punts. San Francisco fumbles the punt. KC recovers, comes right out. Next play, scores a touchdown. Happened that fast. It just sort of went from... San Francisco was up to, oh my God, what just happened? Like you, if you blinked, you missed it. Um, and that really did change sort of the whole momentum and swing of the game. Uh, but none of that, none of that on Brock Purdy. Those are the three things that cost San Francisco uh, the game. Kind of notes on the game, my, my kind of review. Uh, Post Malone doing America the Beautiful to open <laughs> There was a couple of things I saw during that game or during the, the broadcast that I never could have conjured up in the wildest of, you know, edible induced fever dreams. Would I have ever conjured up the image of Post Malone with an acoustic guitar doing America the Beautiful? Good job. I actually like Post Malone a lot. A lot of respect for him. Really creative. Um I don't love all of his music, but I respect uh, his creativity and his productive output. Um, there was that. Uh, the halftime show. I don't want to be a hater, but that was terrible. Uh, when Usher started out, the sound was off. Um, the songs just weren't great. The best part of the Usher performance, Alicia Keys, Little John, Ludacris. And whoever the woman was playing guitar in the middle of the, the set there, um, Usher, great dancer. His dancing was phenomenal. I just It just kind of felt like a very uninspired uh, performance. I just kind of sat there, <laughs> jaw opening, like, this isn't great. Um, commercials. The commercials were kind of a letdown, you know, usually like this is the biggest deal. And I thought like, all right, well, everybody expects Taylor Swift to be there. You know, usually I feel like the the commercials are catered towards the female audience um, for whatever reason. Uh, it kind of divides the audience in half. But th there seems to be like an, an appeal there 
or that's kind of what they say. Like the marketing appeal is to try to appeal to the women. And, and they were just boring. And I, you know, like I, at one point I'm, I'm texting with Katrina because she kind of knows that world of, of television and film a little bit. And she gave me the figure. It's like $7 million for a minute. And I thought like for 7 million bucks, like these are the most uninspiring, uninteresting commercials. A couple of notes though, that I did like, um, the T-Mobile commercial and the Elf Cosmetics commercial, and only because I just finished watching Suits, uh, so it was nice to see those guys uh, back on TV. It was just sort of a, oh, cool, it's the Suits people. Love it. Uh, and they're all still together. Like, I don't know, it kind of gave my brain like this weird thing of like, oh, they're still friends. They still hang out. Um, so that was kind of cool. The Dunkin' Donuts commercial uh, with Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, Tom Brady, uh, Jennifer Lopez, I thought was great. That was maybe the best commercial of the night for me. Um, I just thought like just great for everybody to play themselves, be super campy about it. Uh, Jennifer Lopez was awesome. Uh, yeah, I thought that commercial was fantastic. Uh, in the last commercial, uh, oh, first of all, the Jesus feet commercial. I don't know if you're a religious person. I respect it, but that was just kind of a weird one in, in the middle of the game. Um, and the Kennedy for president, like I'm watching this. I'm like, is this real? Um, and I try not to watch the news because so much of it is depressing and downing, but like Kennedy for president, I've never seen an ad for president that I remember during the Super Bowl, And it was a very sort of hip. Like I, I couldn't tell if it was a real commercial. Um, because it didn't seem very political. It seemed very artistic. Um, and then I had to do a Google search and realize that, yeah, it's RFK's uh, son running for president as an independent. Um, and, and sort of the last note about the commercials, by the second half, I just stopped caring. <laughs> so <laughs> to think that if you paid $7 million for a minute of airtime and your commercial was airing in the third quarter, Nobody saw it. By then, people are already got a buzz on. They're not even watching the commercials. They don't even care anymore. Um, so, yeah, I realized like second half commercials kind of not like if you're paying seven million bucks and they're like, yeah, no, we're going to get you uh, in between the third and the fourth quarter. I'm, no, give me my, my seven million dollars back, because basically at that point in the second half, it's a couple things at play here. One, people are buzzed, maybe drunk, whatever. Uh, what that has done is that has lubricated us a little bit to be more social. So if you're at a Super Bowl party, by then you're just chatting. Uh, and the only time you're really paying attention um, to the game, well, you're not paying attention to the commercials, but you're really just focusing on on square numbers at that point. And yeah. You've drank so much beer by the third quarter. You're up peeing during every commercial anyway, so you're not even watching them. Uh, so that was kind of my my take on that. Um, and I'm like, I'm pausing here because I'm reading my notes. And yeah, like I said, I was prepared. I was watching the game. I kept my notebook next to me, jotting down little things as we went along. My girlfriend's like, "What are you? What are you doing? Like, you're aren't you watching the game?" I'm like, "Yeah, no, I'm taking notes about the things that I want to talk about on the podcast when I." go to record when the game is over. And then I just apparently got too drunk to, to be, to be understandable or 
to just not be ridiculous. So I get to come back and drink some Glenfiddich 12 finished in Amontillado casks the next night. Uh, and it's still, still fantastic. So yeah, hope you guys all had a great, great Super Bowl Sunday. Had you know, hope you had you know good time, good Super Bowl parties, got to hang out with some good people. Um, and yeah, that's a wrap on on football season. Oh, man, this really is, you know, I cannot recommend this enough if you're a scotch drinker. And again, 86 proof. There, there's no lightness on the body. This is big, full-bodied, rich. The finish just lingers and lingers and lingers. When I first tasted it, you know, I, I was there with Bob and, you know, had that first sip. And then we talked for about five or ten minutes, and I realized, like, I can still taste this, like, ten minutes later without taking another sip. I know, again, it's early in the year, but this one... This one has just set the bar currently uh, again, middle of February, but currently this is my whiskey of the year. Um, and it's going to take another whiskey to kind of knock it out of that spot. Uh, the way that I feel right now. And even though it's an $80 bottle and I usually don't repeat buy $80 bottles, I, I may have to get a second one of this cause it is that good. All right, guys, man, I feel like we're all over the place with this, this episode. Um, but it's a fun one for me. Um, and I appreciate the fact that you guys are, are still here listening at this point of the episode. Um, and if you are, then that means you like it and you guys know the drill by now. If you're still here and you like what I'm doing, go to the podcast page, click that follow button, give it a five star rating and share it out on your social media. Um, it is growing. I'm looking at the numbers. And week after week, there's more and more people listening. Um, I love it. I don't know how it's happening, um, but there are more and more people tuning in. So uh, thank you, guys. Thank you, guys, who have been here since the beginning and suffered through some of those rough couple of seasons. Uh, and thank you to all the, the new listeners as well. I really do appreciate it and love the fact that we get to connect like this. Uh, follow along on Facebook and Instagram uh, where you know you can leave comments and reviews about the podcast. Uh, and everything I post on there is is genuine. There are things that I'm I'm drinking. Uh, there are things that I'm reading, uh, listening to. Whatever, it's all real. And like I've said before, I know plenty of people who post you know stock photos on their Instagram of things that they're not even do. They're not even there. Um, everything that's on there, I promise, is stuff that I'm actually doing or tasting. Um, and for anything else. If you get an idea for a show, uh, questions you want to ask me, something you want me to talk about, or hell, if you want to come join me, uh, you can email me at thespiritsguide89 at gmail.com. All right. Thank you, guys. Have a great, great week, and I will talk to you uh, next week. Cheers, guys. Yay!